So we're actually uh, very near the end of our uh, nine-week series on gospel-centered life. And for those of you who've only been coming Sunday mornings, you're getting 25% of the message. Uh, the other 75% happens in family groups. And if you're not in one of those, you're kind of missing that major chunk of how this really matters, how this really applies to our lives. Uh, but what we're trying to do is, is do this as a community together, this study. And so we're doing the same thing here. And this is, um, like I already said, the week eight of our study together. But I don't want us to leave this whole series without the main thing. And we've been talking about it. I feel like we talked about it a little too much. Not that there's such a thing, but you know what I mean, because I'm about to ask a question that I hope you all have heard a few times by now, and that is this. What is the gospel? <laughs> Carrie cannot answer for everybody again, okay? She is prohibited from answering this question. What is the gospel? Good news, that's right. What is the good news? Evangelion in Greek. What is it? Paul says it. What the good news is. Where does he say it explicitly? We're going back now. We're going back like four weeks ago. Four weeks ago was the last time we talked about this. Well, we talk about every week, but four weeks ago was the last time we really talked about this passage. What is it? Yeah, 1 Corinthians 15 is what we're going to be talking about. 15. And Paul says this about the good news. He says, the good news is that Jesus died for our sins according to Scripture. And the good news is that he was buried, which isn't good news at all, it seems. But the good news is that he was raised on the third day according to Scripture. And then he appeared to even us. This is the good news. This is the news about Jesus we share with people. He died for our sins. He died for our failures. He died for our shortcomings. He died for our great offense to God. For many, that's a strange concept. I, I haven't done anything to my creator. I, I, haven't, I haven't wronged him in any way. He, he made me this way. It's not my fault. Yet the truth is that every one of us, by denying that God is God and we are not, try to remove him from his seat of authority in our lives. We try to take him out of the picture. Just cut all the God stuff out and leave me alone. That's an offense to God. It's offensive to him. His word says that. Have no other gods before me. I am God. You are not. And so he sent his son Jesus to die for our sins to make right this offense that could not be covered. We couldn't do it. This is the gospel. It's the core of the gospel. And it's almost so talked about. It's almost so familiar to us that we don't understand the profoundness, and we're going to talk about this today, the profoundness of what the gospel means for us in our lives. So that was one thing we talked about. Now, the second three weeks, we talked about another scripture that relates directly to the gospel. Who knows what that is? Yeah, Romans. That's right. Romans 1. I think it's 18. 16 and 17. Look at that. And this is what, this, don't turn there, but this is what it says. You can if you want, I guess, if you're fast, right? It's according to Romans 1, 16 through 17, it says the gospel is the power of God. This news about Jesus is not only good news intellectually. It does not just mean that we have, you know, our, our bank, account is, bank account is paid, that the balance is paid in full. It actually means that, that the same gospel is the very power of God in our lives, the very thing that enables us to live, to breathe, to dwell in him again. We're going to talk about that today as well in our study. The gospel has a priority in our lives that it first comes to us, not to other people. So many of us want other people to be saved, but yet we don't receive the gospel first. We don't receive it ourselves, and that's, that's critical. And then it, it calls us to live lives of righteousness by faith. And that means that, that if you're, we're talking about this, if you're asking for a sign, you may not get it. 
If you want worldly wisdom, it may not come. Because the journey is a journey of faith that God is God and we are not, and that he has made things right in his son Jesus on the cross. So here's the third place we're going to look. And this one we're going to turn to. 1 Corinthians, again, chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. Now, we're not going to read the whole thing this morning. We did it last week. I would encourage you, if you haven't read that, to read it sometime. Just open it and read through it and see what Paul is saying there about the gospel. But I actually want to focus in our time right now on verses 20 through 25, specifically. And this is what Paul writes. He says, where is this wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom, through its wisdom did not know him. Wait, I'm gonna read this again. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom didn't know him, it means they couldn't find him on their own. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believed. Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greek looks for wisdom. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. I hope you hear what they just said. And that's what we're gonna, I want to talk about, this delineation here in 1 Corinthians that Paul makes about who is looking for what in the world? Now, I'm going to suggest this morning that we substitute a couple of words out because some of this stuff, this was written 2,000 years ago. These texts were written 2,000 years ago. Isn't that amazing to you? It's amazing to me because 2,000 years have passed and yet these same conversations are still happening. Where is the wise man of this age? Where are the scholars? That's what Paul writes. It's still the burden that we carry. We're enlightened now, right? 400 years, 500 years of enlightenment. Where is the wisdom? Where is the philosopher? Where is the scholar? He says, God has made foolish this wisdom of this world. For since in the wisdom of God, the world was made, uh, couldn't find him on its own, but God was pleased through the foolishness of what is preached to save those who believe. Now, this is what I want to talk about. Verse 22. Jews demand miraculous signs. I want to unpack this a little bit. I want us to think, because see, here's the problem. Are anybody here Jew Jewish? Is anybody here Jewish? Good. Thanks. Glad you're here this morning. Um, not many of us are Jews here, right? Not many of us. But some of us here are believers. We're believers. We've been born again in Christ Jesus. We believe in God. Some of us maybe just do that. We're just theists. We believe in God. Not sure about Jesus necessarily. These are the folks that begin to demand miraculous signs of God. We heard the same thing from Jesus when he said, you come looking for a sign, but you're not going to get it. You're not going to get it. And yet miracles were happening every day for those who could see, those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. So the religious, I want to put in there, verse 22, the religious people demand miraculous signs. And here's the trouble, I think. Sometimes we, even as believers, we say, well, if you're God, prove it. If you're God, do something. If you're God, show up on my doorstep. Ring my doorbell. And Paul says, it's not coming. Why? Because the cross of Christ, Jesus Christ crucified, is a stumbling block for those who are looking for miraculous works. 
There wasn't very much miraculous work happening when Jesus was nailed to the cross, or so it seemed. This isn't the Savior we were all looking for. This isn't the head of the class, you know, the strongest guy in the room, the best-looking woman. This isn't a person who had achieved everything they could do. This is someone who went to their grave a loser. The cross of Christ is foolishness to those who are demanding miraculous signs. And then this is, this is the second part. So Paul says this. I want you to see the linear, the, the, the kind of the way this tracks through. They demand miraculous signs, but it's a stumbling block to them because they're not going to get it. You're not going to get it if you're asking God for that. But for those who see, let me find it, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God. You want to see a miraculous sign? Believe. It's a miracle. You, you look and see what God does in the world. It's the very power of God. It's kind of what we experienced yesterday. It's God showing up and doing something that we just didn't do. It wasn't all us. The very power of God. The second part of this is more us, right? The Greeks look for wisdom. And I think in, in our time right now, we want to explain this all makes sense. I can explain to you exactly what happened. You see that there was this insurmountable debt that we had with God and we couldn't make it right. And God requires blood for, for uh, sacrifices to cover sins. That's actually our memory verse of the week. He does require blood. There's no forgiveness without blood. So he's going he's to take some atonement here and it's going to be yours. It's going to be mine. We can't do that. It's not going to work. Here's, the, here's what happens intellectually, right? This is what we're going to explain away the gospel. God made the man. We couldn't pay it. He sent Jesus to pay the price. It's true. He died on the cross so we wouldn't have to. And in him we have eternal life. And then we try to explain that to folks. Now wait a minute. How, how does him dying on a cross bring us? How, how is it that that makes us right with God? And we can spend all of our time trying to explain, trying to make wisdom of what God has made foolishness to us. I sometimes call the gospel the upside-down gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the things that you don't expect to see. You don't expect to find your Savior on a cross. You don't expect the weak to be strong. You don't expect the poor to be rich. You don't expect those who have nothing to have the most. But this is how the gospel works in our lives. Greeks look for wisdom. Now I want to follow that same track, right? But we preach Christ crucified it's foolishness to Gentiles. It's foolishness to those who don't believe. I was one of them. It just didn't make any sense. It didn't make any sense to me. But for those who believe, it's the wisdom of God. And that's where we come to. And I want to say that, that I know right now I'm probably, you're, you might be thinking, what are you talking about, man? I'm saying that we often try to explain away the very thing that requires faith. The very thing that God is, is testing you in. Do you believe me? Do you believe I would give my son for you? Do you believe I would come and live and die for you to make right this blood atonement, what was required of the law? And every time we try to explain that away, we remove the power of the cross of Christ. We remove the power of his sacrifice. In verse 25, it goes on, Paul goes on to say, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men's greatest wisdom, and still true today, 2,000 years later. 
and the weaknesses of God, the weakness of God is stronger than man's greatest strength. Still true 2,000 years later. So today, that's kind of just the groundwork today about this foolishness of the cross that we're going to preach. Because today, we're going to do kind of a dangerous thing. It's kind of, it really is dangerous, and I want to be upfront about that. Because today we're going to talk about how this gospel applies to our life. You know, we started out saying what the gospel does to us and what the gospel does in us, and now we're doing what the gospel does through us these last three weeks, right? Last week, this week, and next week. What, what is God doing through us in our lives, through this foolishness of the cross of Christ? What fool's errand are you being sent on? Well, this week is dangerous because this week we're going to talk about something that God calls us to, which is forgiveness. This gospel that we have received, that we have believed, it requires us to do some, some hard things, some very hard things, and some would say foolish things. And I pray that today as we open the word, that God would reveal to us the truth without apology, without excuse of what is required of us due to the gospel. But I don't know, how are you in this forgiveness thing? You know, some of us have an easier time than others. Our family group this week talked about how some of us, it was like, eh, water under the bridge. You know, easy come, easy go. We got it. Forgiven, right? And then others really said, you know, I hold on pretty tight to grudge. Where are you in that? I bet by the end of the time together today, we're all going to really realize how unforgiving we can be. How hard it is to truly forgive like Jesus has. So as we get into the word, I'm going to ask that you would pray with me and we're going to turn and, and really dig in here. Father, this morning I pray, your word promises where two or three agree on anything in my name, I will grant it. And today I know there are two or three gathered here that want to see your spirit move, that want to know your truth, your wisdom, your revelation to us, Father God. And so today, as you see fit and by your grace and mercy, we pray you would dwell richly you know, we confess that we have hard hearts. We confess we have stubborn minds. We have cloudy vision. We have ears that can't hear. And yet we know your spirit can move mountains. Your spirit can break hearts. Your spirit can open minds and eyes and ears. Today, Lord, we pray that you reveal yourself to us and not, in, you know, just in the way that you see fit. We're not going to demand a sign or a miracle. We're just going to ask you, Lord, to dwell in faith. We're going to trust that you're going to do it. Open your word to our minds that we might grow in you, love you, and proclaim you more. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, who's made it all possible. Amen. So here's the text today. The text today is actually going to be Matthew 18. If you want to turn, and if you brought a Bible this morning. By the way, I would encourage you to bring Bibles to worship. Um, it's just something that's probably a good thing to bring with you. And if you don't have one of your own, you're welcome to grab one of ours off the chair. It's page 756 in our Bibles uh, that we provide. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take the one that's in your hand with you if you're using one of ours this morning. So Matthew 18, verse 21, we're just going to start right there. We're going to kind of just talk through the text a little bit, so I hope you'll, you know, kind of bear with me here. Matthew 18, 21 says this. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sinned against me? Up to seven times? Now, for the, many of us know this, but Peter is one of the disciples of Jesus. He's one of the inside circle. I would even argue that he's on the inside of the inside circle. You know, if you want to like Jesus' 
best friends, Peter was one of them. Peter was one of them. And, and he's in there and he's been following Jesus' teachings. And I want you to notice that in verse 21 it says, then at that time in that place, Peter came to Jesus and asked. So this is Peter coming to our Lord Jesus and he's saying, wait a minute. What are you saying here? I want you to look back with me a little bit. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Right above that text that we're studying today, we're in verse 21. Right above it, starting in verse 15, is this text that we studied a few weeks ago that says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault between the two of you. And we talked about that three-step process for reconciliation. You go and show fault, then you bring another brother in Christ and sister in Christ and you show fault. And if there's no um, repentance and reconciliation, then you bring them before the church, right? But I want you to follow on through. And actually before that even it says, Jesus tells this parable of lost sheep, how important those who don't yet believe are to God. How important it is. Jesus said, I didn't come to save the healthy, but the sick. He really cares for people who don't know him, who don't know God. And so he's telling this to Peter and Peter knows him. Peter's on the inside, you know. Peter's like, I'm your right hand man. That's what he knows. He knows about his relationship with Jesus. And then he hears this hard teaching about your brother. And I want you to look in verse 18. He says, I'll tell you the truth, Jesus tells Peter. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Jesus goes on to teach. Again, I tell you that if any two or three of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done by my Father, for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. And with that, it seems that Jesus kind of goes away. Now, I don't know what the separation here is, but I know that Peter's over there and he's starting to do some math. I have to go and tell my brother he sinned against me. And if my brother says, I'm sorry, I, I, I messed up, he repents, he turns around, he turns a page, he, I have to reconcile with him? And then Jesus told us that if we forgive something, it's forgiven. And if we bind something, it's bound. And Peter's going, what are you talking about? And look at what it says. It says, and then at that time, Peter came to Jesus. He comes back to Jesus and he goes, Lord, I have a question for you. How many times shall I forgive my brother? Seven times? See, Peter's going, I just need a limit here because I can't do this. I can't keep forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. And Jesus answered this way. He said, I'll tell you, not seven, but 77. That's what my translation says. He actually says 70 times seven. Now, we had a little fun with this in our, in our, our family group because some of us are better at math than others. And, and someone in the group said, that's 490 times. I've met my quota. <laughs> you know, we were talking about husbands and wives specifically. There's 365 days in a year. Yeah, first year and a half marriage. You're over your quota. It wasn't literal. It was this instrument, this, this unfathomable thought. Peter was really serious. I have to forgive him seven times, Lord. And he goes, no, 70 times seven. Way more than you think you have to. You have to forgive him. And then Jesus tells a parable. And this is a great story. We're going to unpack it a little bit. We've heard it before, but this is what he says. He, he, he goes right into this parable and he says, 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. 
since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had would be sold to repay his debt. So here Jesus goes right into the story about this king who had this servant who owed him. Now I'm wondering as I read this text, how is it that a servant comes into debt of his king? This isn't like, you know, the, the proverb says uh, the borrower is slave to the lender, right? But what is it that this servant has borrowed against? What is it that this servant has done that he has, he has owed this great debt to his king? Because the debt is huge. The king decides there's a day that's coming and we're going to settle up what you owe me. We talked about it earlier a little bit. This is what we're doing in our lives here. What do we owe God anyway? What has he done for us? This debt that he has is 10,000 talents. Now, I, 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 without getting too, you know, nerdy here, I want to explain. A talent is the biggest weight measure they had for money. I, I'm trying to remember what the thing was. I think it was, if it was silver, it was 100 pounds of silver. And if it was gold, it was 200 pounds of gold, which I can't explain that. But it was just a lot. It was, it was a bunch of stuff. It was, you had to get a friend or two to pick it up and carry it around. There's a text that says, uh, sin is like a talent of lead. It just weighs you down. It's huge debt. It's this huge burden. 10,000 talents. It literally means an unimaginable sum. To those who would have first heard it, they would have thought, 10,000 talents? What did that guy do? What did he do to owe that much money? How was that? I got two words for you I want to share with you this morning from our current situation to give us some perspective. I can't think in those big numbers, millions and stuff. Do you know, I heard that this week there was, um, there was more stuff in the news about Bernie Madoff. Bernie Madoff is the guy who, who ran this huge scheme and built a, a whole bunch of people, I don't know how many people, out of, he confessed to 50 b- b- billion dollars 50 billion dollars he stole from people that's what he confessed to now there's all these math nerds that are trying to figure out what he really owed and and they're doing this stuff and and they figured that he really owes about 18 million dollars i mean 18 billion dollars oh there it is i'm like where did that go there we go 18 billion dollars i want to get these facts right here so he had this huge debt. He had this huge problem. And he actually told his kids, whenever the debt came due, whenever the gig was up, whenever he couldn't pay the bills anymore, he got his family in the room and he said, I'm finished. It's over. There is no coming back from this. Huge debt. Huge debt. And that's very much like what happens here with the servant. It's this moment in his life where his number has been called and he can't possibly make it right. The time has passed for earning it off. There is no hope. There is no way. And I want you to see what the plan is here. The king has this plan. Since you can't pay, I'm going to order that you be sold and your wife be sold and your children be sold and everything that you own. And if you're a slave, I'm not sure how much you really own, but it can't be much, but it's going to be sold to try to pay back a debt. It's going to be a pittance of what you owe. There is no way you're coming back from this. 
And I want you to look in verse 26. I want you to think about the reality, the gravity of that situation when you're standing there and you realize you owe a debt you can't possibly pay back. This is what the servant does. He falls on his knees before his king and he says, be patient with me, he begged. I will pay back everything. You know, the NIV doesn't really get at it. The word beg there means he worshiped him. He just fell down. It means he kissed his hand. And he said, be patient with me. I'll pay back everything I owe. Please be patient. I want you to see the benevolence of the king. Verse 27, the servant's master took pity on him, had mercy and he canceled the debt and let him go free. Now, I don't know how that strikes you, but that doesn't seem like justice at all, does it? I mean, could you imagine if whatever Bernie Madoff had what happened to him, if he could have begged his way out of it? If he could have just fallen down to knees of some authority and said, please, I'm so sorry. And they're like, you know what? You're right. Never mind. The word actually means he wiped out the debt and let him go. He set him free. You talk about a roller coaster ride to go from thinking you were, your whole family is going to be destroyed to God saying, you're free. Go. Your king says, run and live freely. So here we are in the middle of the story, and this is a good news now, right? Because this king is benevolent, man, and this guy is free. His kids are free. His wife is free. His stuff is his. It's unbelievable. And he goes running out into the streets, and look at what happens in verse 28. But as soon as the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants, right? That's Sundolos, a slave just like him, right? He goes and finds someone that's a slave just like he is who owed him 100 denarii. I want you to notice the difference. This ain't 100 talents. 10,000 talents, 100 denarii. He had him 100 denarii, and he grabbed him, and he began to choke him. And he screamed, pay back what you owe me. What? Who, who has a, I'm going to ask a question this morning. Who has a penny today? Anybody have a penny? See if you got a penny. You got a, you got a penny, Mike? You did. There it is. Thanks, Mike, for the penny. Very generous. Who else has a penny? Do you mind giving that to me? Are you sure? Really? Oh, cool. Thanks. Anybody else? Oh, thanks. Look at this, Fred. We're going to make it. We're going to make it. Anybody? Oh, look at there. You hand me that, Donna. Oh. Look at there. Freddie's got one back here. Anybody else? Look. Look at the pennies coming. Wow, you all are generous folks. Nobody even complained about it. Don't throw it. I won't catch it. I can't even see them. Look at that. Good. So here's the deal. He owes him 100 denarii, it says. You know, literally, a denarii is like a pittance. It's, it's like a pence piece. It, it's a penny. It's, it's, practically, it's practically worthless. This is what the servant, look at what he does. He goes and he finds someone who owes him 100 pennies. And he grabs this guy by the throat 
And he starts to choke the life out of him. And he says, pay back what you owe me. Pay it back right now. Verse 29 says this, his fellow servant fell on his knees and begged him. Look at the similarity. The word here actually is different. The word isn't the same as the other word begged. It's not worshiped. He just drew near to him. He's kind of sidled up and he said, hey man, be patient with me and I'll pay you back. But this guy says, nope. And he refused. And instead, he went off and had that man thrown into prison until he could pay back his debt. Pennies. Well, the other servants saw what happened, and they were greatly distressed. They were troubled. They knew it wasn't right, and they went and they told their master what had happened. And when the master called that servant in, and listen to what he said, you wicked servant, it means you evil servant, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in anger, his master then turned him over to the jailers to, jailers to be tortured until he could pay back everything he owed. What a story from Christ. What a story from Jesus. That in the end, this one who could not forgive, who could not let it go, who could not let that person be free for pennies, had to pay the price. I was talking earlier, and I don't want to make light of the situation. I was talking earlier about Bernie Madoff. I'm not, I'm not making fun of a situation that's a tragedy for him and his kids and his family. It's a tragedy for the thousands of people that have lost. is a tragedy. But you know what his penalty was? Bernie got 150 years and $170 billion in repayment. He will never pay it back. One of the things I was reading said, it's an academic exercise in figuring his punishment because he'll never finish it. It's not possible. And this is where this servant found himself in this debt he could not repay right back. He had angered the very one who'd forgiven him by his lack of forgiveness. Now, I want to show you two things. We're going to kind of wrap up here, but I want to show you two things. Jesus says in 35, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. This is not a flippant teaching from God. This is not something that we can say, well, do your best. One of the things that happened this week as I was preparing this message and our, and our family groups uh, that I went to this week, People said, really? Do we really have to forgive other people? Do we really have to let them go? Do we really have to, let, to want that for them? Because that's hard. I don't know if I can do that. Jesus is not mince words when he says, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother. If you just forgive him. I'm going to turn back a few a few pages here. You can, if you want to, you don't have to. You probably know this. It's in Matthew 6, verse 9. 
This is something we all know. Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray, and he says, This then is how you ought to pray. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth like it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And, you know, we did some exercises about that very text. Does he really mean forgive others? I mean, forgive me like I forgave others. Is that really what Jesus is saying there? Look right below it in 14. Jesus says, because if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive them their sins, your Father will not forgive yours. Now that is a hard teaching. That is a very difficult teaching. The problem is that for those of us who have been set free in Christ, who've been given free this debt that we could not carry, there is an expectancy that we would forgive those who are fellow slaves, who were, who were yoked by the same burdens that we were. And you know what's funny? As I went around this morning and collected these, it didn't seem like it was really that hard to give them up. But sometimes we can say, you don't know how much that one costs. You don't know how hard that one is. God knows. He knows. And in the end of the day, we're asked to let it all go. Man, it's driving me crazy. Because, you know, they have value. There's something to it. They, they really hurt. And God says, you got to let them go. It's not just forgiving someone. It's wanting them. It's the, what they said until you win a brother. It's wanting that person to be free from it. It's not enough that many of our own teachings in our culture right now are about, you know, you need to do it for yourself. You need to let go so you're better. And I'm not saying you won't get a benefit from it. I'm not saying there's not some scientific proof that if you let go of this, you know, forgive others, that you're freer to live. But the truth of the scripture is that when you do it, you don't do it so that you feel better. You do it so your brother, your sister can be free because they're bound in that sin against you. They're bound in it. Until we set them free. You'll notice at the bottom of your card, I believe God's been working in your heart. He's working in mine. There's a spot. It's one of the next steps, and it's an action item, and it says, identify the sin and offer forgiveness to blank. Uh, you don't have to fill it out right now in front of everybody because I know that you're sitting there next to somebody. It might be the person you need to forgive right next to you. It might be the person in this room you need to forgive. But I want you to prayerfully consider who that person is, that person or people is in your life. Now, here's the steps. I want you to kind of follow along here as we go through these quickly. Ways to prepare our heart for forgiveness. And these are things we've heard before. I wrote them on your card for you already, right? Who, what, why, when, where, and how. And this is going to be the process where we can actually live through the forgiveness of others. And so the first one is this. It's who. And, and the question is, who do I need to forgive in my life? Who do I need to forgive in my life? Some ways that this material did a great job of identifying who those people are in your life is people that you've been avoiding. It's people that when you're standing in there having a conversation, you're uncomfortable with them for whatever reason. 
It's people, this is my favorite one, by the way. It was people who you've been rehearsing a conflict in your mind with them over and over and over again. And then I'm going to say this, and they're going to say that, and then I'm going to say that, and they're going to say this. And that means that you're obsessing about something that is actually a sin between you, and you should be forgiving that person. There's something that they have done that needs to be forgiven by you, by you. The second question is this, what? What is it that bothers me about that person? Why is it that I'm uncomfortable talking to them? What is it? Why? What is it that I'm not comfortable being there? Identify what it is that bugs you so much. The third is this, why? Why do I require justice? Now, I want to be clear here. You have a right to justice. You have a right to ask that question. You have a right to say it was wrong. It should not have happened. That's why it's sin. Why do I require justice? What was the hurt, the injury, the sin against me? What is the heart issue behind it all? And then number four, and this one's kind of fun. I would encourage you to have some fun with this. You may not think it is. Because once you've identified what is it bothers you and why you need justice in your life, I want you to go ahead and make a list of when it would be okay to forgive that person. Because often what we talk about in our group is, well, I'm going to forgive them whenever they do this. I'm going to forgive them whenever they do that. I'm going to forgive them. And, you know, my favorite, because, I, I mean, we started talking about it. I said, well, my favorite, I, I want them to come and crawl to me, you know? I want them to crawl up, and I want them to say, I was so wrong. Oh, I, I, I screwed up. And I'm going, yeah, the forgiveness, I can feel it welling up inside of me now. You know what I mean? I want them to grovel. I want them to kiss my shoe. I, I want them to say, you know, you were so right. Just let that stuff come. What is required? What do they have to say to you? What do they have to do in your life? When will it be okay for you to forgive them? Answer honestly there. The fifth question is where? Not where do you forgive them, but where have you seen forgiveness like that in your life? Where have you stood with God himself and received forgiveness? for something just like that. The question I ask is, how has Christ forgiven me in that same thing, that same offense, that same way? I said earlier, the memory verse, uh, it's on our cards here. It it says that this Hebrew is 9.22. I want you to write down one next to it. Colossians 3.13. Colossians 3.13. Because it kind of answers that, where, when is this okay? Where have I seen this before, this forgiveness? And then the last one here is this. How? How has my requirement on that person made the gospel too small? How have I forgotten this debt that I've been forgiven, that I'm running around bellyaching about pennies, nickels, dimes, quarters, dollars, fives, tens, when I couldn't pay the debt I had with God? How has my small gospel view kept that person in slavery, kept them there, enslaved? You see, ultimately, for the forgiveness must be about freeing that other person. Your heart's desire is to see him free. 
We talked last week about the intentionality of Jesus Christ as he faced the cross. Even Peter, who said, no, are you not going? You're not going to go there, Lord. Even Peter, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You don't know the things of God. He knew what he was called to do. Why? It was for us. In that moment, he saw the freedom that we had lying before us. He saw the way out, the unforgivable debt, and he paid the price on the cross on Calvary. We have been, given, been forgiven an eternal debt in Christ Jesus. So today I'm wondering, what forgiveness are we holding on to? Let's pray. Father, today we come and we, we, we hear this gospel that you would send your son to die for us. And maybe today we're right there and we don't even think we've offended you. How, what have we owe you? What, what is it that we've missed here, Lord? I pray that you reveal it in our hearts. I thank you for Jesus because I know in my heart there was a debt I couldn't pay. And I thank you that Jesus willingly, for the, for the joy of the cross, for the joy of what was before him, laid down his life for me to be free. We thank you as a community of believers here at Family Bible Church that you have freed us to run. You freed us to go forward, Father. And I pray that for any heart here today that doesn't know that freedom in Christ, that, that you would speak to them now, that you would show them your love and mercy, that your spirit would teach them about your son, Jesus, that they could know and understand, maybe for the first time, the debt that's been paid. And for all those of us who've received it, Lord, we confess that we've forgotten how great the price is you paid for us to be free. But yet the work that we have to do, letting people go, it's hard. It's hard. We're hurt. It's real. And we know that only by your spirit will we ever be able to be free again, ever be able to want our brother or sister to be free in you. So today, Lord, we ask that you would come and dwell with us. Give us hearts that would desire that others would be free. Give us hearts of forgiveness. It's only through you that we can do it. We trust you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we wrap up here, you know, this is not any old week. I know this morning a few of you have said, man, I'm really excited about this week because it's, I get two days off of work. And uh, I, I want to encourage us now to kind of turn the corner here a little bit. I'm gonna, we're going to spend a few minutes here reflecting, and I have this video I want to show you. What is Thanksgiving? And what are we called to do this week? So... Check it out. Who we are, we are now. Let it out, I am breaking holy ground. Well, as we go forward this week, um, start small, you know. I think that was such a great thing, that message. And um, I know the forgiveness and the hurts can be huge. Start small, start small, but let's remember what Christ did for us. May we, you and I, thank God this week for everything great and small. And the people of God say, amen. Have a great Thanksgiving. <laughs>